You're listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. In this week's lesson, Philip Edwards will teach on how the lost relationship with God is at last restored and how the critical issues that stood in God's way of personal intimacy with man were removed. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk where you can study past modules, register for future modules and see the other ministries we have to offer. You can also follow us on social media at Arise Ministry UK. And now over to Philip Edwards for today's teaching. Welcome again uh, this evening to uh, another evening study on the covenants. This is uh, week six of this uh, eight week course and we've arrived at a very exciting point where we're going to discover about the new covenant, the covenant that all of us have entered into uh, through Jesus Christ. Let's just pray before we uh, study this this evening. Heavenly Father, as as ever, we're dependent upon your Holy Spirit to guide us and to lead us and to reveal things into our heart. Lord, there's a lot of detail in this and uh, we don't want to miss anything. We want to cover it so we fully understand uh, what it is you did through Jesus Christ for us. And so we commit ourselves to apply our hearts and minds to receive from you this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. In this teaching, I'm going to be slow and uh, you might think a little pedantic uh, because I want to cover each detail very carefully and make sure that we really understand it. So I've, I tend to, uh, to, to break it right down. We're at the end of this journey, the journey which started a long, long time ago in the Garden of Eden, where God made promises to Adam and Eve, and then we've traveled through uh, and seen the covenant he made with Abraham, the covenant he made with his nation Israel through Moses, we moved on last week to see the Davidic covenant, the covenant he made with David. And in that covenant, he said, a day will come when a king of the line of David will sit on the throne of David and he would be the king of the whole world. So we've seen it moving out from the Garden of Eden to God or Jesus coming and being the king of the whole world. We're going to deal now with the new covenant, the covenant that Christ came and made uh, with the church uh, to God. We know we have this wonderful thing called salvation, but I discovered that a lot of people don't know a lot about their salvation. They know they're saved. They feel they're saved. They experience some, sometimes what their salvation is. It's true, it's real to them, but they don't know much detail about it. And of course, in the teaching that we're going to do tonight, I hope to expose a lot of uh, the, the teaching relating to our salvation. After the covenant with David, a number of critical issues still stood in the way of God achieving what he wanted to achieve, which was an everlasting relationship of personal intimacy 
with man. Remember, that's, that's what he started with, a very personal intimate relationship with Adam and Eve, lost at the fall, and now he's, he's working through these covenants to bring us to the point where he can have that again. He wants to live with us eternally. He wants to live in the midst of us. He wants to be close to us, just like he was in the garden there. And so this is how he brings this about through these covenants. As I said, there, were, there are four critical issues that God had to deal with concerning men if God is to have an intimate relationship with them, with us. So I'm going to look at four of these issues now. First, I'll explain what the issue is, and then we'll uh, see how God remedied the problem in so that he could have this relationship with us. Number one, it was the need for a final solution to the sin problem. We know all through the Old Testament, in fact, as you read it, you become wearied by the people of God who just continually sinned and sinned and God would be gracious and they would sin again and you think, what's wrong with these people? Well, they never had the benefits that we have living in the New Covenant and we'll discover what these are. But it is tiring to read about it. God's always forgiving and always reaching out. So God has to deal with this sin problem. We, before we came to Christ, we, we were slaves to sin. Now, I've said this before, and so it's just a little phrase. I sin because I'm a sinner. I sin because I'm a sinner. Okay? It isn't the sins that make me a sinner. Okay? It's the fact that I'm a sinner that I sin. So even if I didn't sin, day after day after day, I would still be recognised by God as a sinner, a slave to sin. Now, you say, Philip, you're born again. Okay, so I'm no longer a sinner, I'm now a saint because I have faith in Jesus Christ. But prior to coming to Christ, I was a sinner. Whether I sinned or not, I was a sinner. I was born with this fallen nature of being a sinner. It is though there was something inside of me that was a master that made me sin. The scripture says I was a slave to sin and it forced me to sin. We, uh, it was the fruit in my life. Now, fruit sounds, oh, that's a nice thing. Well, that's why I sinned, because it was nice. But it was really, I was being bullied by something in me called sin that kept making me do it, whether I did or didn't want to do it. Of course, I really wanted to do it because I enjoyed sin because of my fallen nature. But there was something that was making me do it. We call this thing sin. When God uh, came to Cain, remember, he said to him, Cain, you need to change the attitude on your face because sin is crouching at the door and it wants to possess you or have you. It desires for to have you. If you think of that as imagery, you've got somebody, something at the door and he's wanting, he's wanting to have control of it. He, and the Bible calls that sin. And when sin rules in our nature, we sin. 
he forces us to sin. If we go back to the Old Testament, the Old Covenants, we find that God uh, asked them to offer sacrifices for sins. And through the shedding of the blood, that blood was atoning for their sin. It, it covered their sin. And so it made it possible for God to relate to them. But that blood, the blood of animals, was not powerful enough to destroy within the people themselves the guilt of sin or, and as well as their sin consciousness. The stain of sin, we could call that. So when they sinned or, and they would offer sacrifices, they knew they were acceptable to God, but they were still guilty of their sin. Sin has to be judged, you see, and once it's judged and punished for, the guilt is removed. But unless it's judged and punished, the guilt remains. So before Jesus came, everyone had to carry the guilt of their sin and the stain of their sin and the consciousness of their sin with them. Under the new covenant or in the new covenant, the first problem that God had to deal with, the first critical issue, was he had to remove this thing in us called sin. He had to get it out of us so we wouldn't have to keep sinning. This is the first thing he has to deal with in the new covenant. The second thing that he has to deal with is the law that God gave the people was external. We know that Moses came down the mountain and he had the Ten Commandments and all the other laws. They fitted in or explained what the Ten Commandments were. There were a good number of others and, and they explained what, what the Ten Covenants said. Now, even if you could read the laws, which you could do because Moses got them all together and he read to them the book of the law, which was the covenant, the book, the book of the law. You could read them, but none of these laws helped you stop sinning. It didn't help you at all. They just said, you're sinning. This is sin. And it, wasn't, it couldn't help them at all. God had to somehow get this law that was out here in here. So once the law was resident within our hearts, it could stop us from sinning. That was the second issue that God had to deal with. God proved through his people by giving them the law, the, the problem they had, they had inner values. We have values in our lives. You might have a value that says uh, not to tell lies. But then other people with a sin or a fallen nature says, oh, it's all right to tell lies. You see, they're different values that we, we hold. So the people of the Old Testament, they would read the law and inside them there was a set of values that were the result of their fallen nature. And so whenever the law of God, thou shalt not, came up against an internal value of somebody, it was always the values in people's hearts that trumped the law. It was never the other way around. So God had to do something so he could get, he could get something into us to change our values. 
This was a critical thing. Without our values being changed, the law, although it told us to do something, would always be trumped by the values in our own life. We see that around us all the time with people that aren't born again. They all have their own values and they live according to their values, whether they're virtuous or not. They live according to the values that they hold within their heart. The third critical issue that needs to be dealt with is man doesn't only lack the power to obey God's laws. Remember when he read the laws to them, they all said, we will obey the laws. Well, it was in their heart to do it. They, they knew it was the right thing to do, but they didn't have the power within to do it. They just couldn't do it. Somehow, people lack the motivation to obey the laws of God. Even the desire to obey the laws of God, they just lacked it completely. God had to do something with the fact that people weren't motivated to keep God's laws. The scripture tells us that the mind of a sinful person is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law, and it says in scripture, nor can it do so. So when you're talking to people who aren't born again, people who haven't put their faith in Jesus Christ, if you're talking to their minds, you're going to lose every time because their minds are hostile to God, not interested in the things of God. What's got to happen, you hope, in your conversation, that's why you don't have to get all your words perfectly right when you're talking to somebody. The Holy Spirit can take your words and it is only the Holy Spirit does it. He, he applies them to the heart of the person. If that doesn't happen, your words will never win somebody over. They never will. And so just keep talking. Just keep talking. And just pray that the Spirit jumps on some of these words. Because that's how you got born again. Uh, all of a sudden, something was right. You might have sit and, and listened to the gospel a dozen times. People kept taking you to church. They kept telling you, but it was, it didn't make any sense until one day it just did. And you think, well, don't have to tell me again. I get it now because on that one occasion, I would presume at least, the Holy Spirit jumped on those words and illuminated something in the inside that made it possible for that person to respond. So the mind of a sinful person is hostile to God. Something has to be done about that. In addition to that, all of man's nature is affected by sin and rebellion. So there's absolutely no way that he can change. Man just can't change. He can't be good. Something has to happen. God has to do something. This, this is a critical issue with God that God has to deal with. And of course, through the old covenants, he proves all these things to be true, to be a reality. Now in the new covenant, he's going to deal with all of these issues. Man's heart had to be cleansed and his inner values rendered inoperable. Uh, we always keep our, our fallen nature within us. And it can always start to operate again 
but through the death and resurrection of Christ and the truth of salvation, it's rendered inoperable, but we have a part to play in making it inoperable. Uh, we have to keep it in check all the time. That's the part that we play in this. And of course, the other thing that God needs to do is implant in us a new set of values. The values that we have in our fallen nature, I wouldn't like to look at your values, really dodgy. It's about self. It's about getting stuff. It's about materialism. Often it's about just how you are, where the new values is all about goodness and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and all of these things. So these values have to be changed. The fourth thing that God has to deal with through the new covenant, there is an enormous gulf, the word of God says, between us and God. The gulf is so wide, we can't do anything to bridge it. We can't get across. There's nothing that we can do to get to God. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they were cut off immediately and they couldn't come into his presence. Remember, he said, you can't. You get out of the garden, there's an angel there, there's no way you can come into my presence. If anything's going to happen here, I have got to come to you. You cannot come to me because of what you have done. God will have to find a way to bridge the gulf between himself and his creation. The initiative must come from God if he's to do it. All the covenants are God taking the initiative, taking it with Abraham, taking it with Moses, taking it with David. No one ever approached God and said, listen, God, I've got this good deal. What do you think? Well, maybe Jacob tried that in a, in a very small way. But basically, it's God reaching out. God knew that a spirit from God, a spirit from God would have to come to indwell man and unite him with Christ. That's the only way it would happen. God had to somehow indwell man and make it possible for him to unite with Christ. 1,000 years after David, God is ready. He's ready to cut a new and a final covenant that will deal with each of these critical issues and finally redeem mankind. He has a redemptive plan, a plan to bring us back into relationship with him, to release him, man that is, from the slave master of sin that dictates to him on the inside and unite him with himself. It says in Romans 3, um, 23 and 24, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There isn't any person on this planet who's ever lived who didn't need God to come and make it possible for him to be connected with him again. We've sinned, we've fallen, there's no way we can do it. And then it, it, I love this next part of this verse. And we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came 
by Christ Jesus. We were justified in his presence freely. He did it through his grace. He gifted you something freely by his grace. And that is the redemption that we have in Christ. Put simply, that could be all men have fallen, but through Christ, all men can be raised up again. All God's covenants are covenants of peace. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. God is a, a God of peace. Peace is important in our lives. Peace is, is important to God. He wants to live at peace with all men. He tells us to live at peace with all men. He says in Romans, as much as lieth in you, live at peace with all men. A covenant then is a covenant of peace. Or to enter into a covenant is to make one's peace. The new covenant accomplished by Jesus is also described as making peace. There's a verse in Colossians 1, 19 and 20 that says this, For God was pleased to have all fullness dwell in him. So in Christ dwelt the fullness of God, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. God is, is reconciling everything in creation back to himself. Whether things on earth or things in heaven, so everything is being reconciled by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So through Christ's death on the cross, it is possible that all of us can live at peace with everything in heaven and everything on earth. That is the covenant that's the purpose of covenant, that we would live in peace. Those are the four issues then that God has to deal with. We're going to look now how he deals with it. That's it. That's what the new covenant is about. Let's look at the final one before we have a short break and then come back to the other three. All sin... We're looking at the, the final solution to deal with sin, the problem of sin, the problem we, we've all had. Not the fact that you commit sins, the fact that sin is resident within you, whatever, whatever way you describe it or think of it, it's something that is resident within you. All sin is an offence to God. So even if you don't sin, if you're unregenerate and God looks at you, you are an offence to God because sin is resident within you. Only God can deal with that. And that's what he does through the new covenant. God can't overlook sin. He must judge all sin. We can overlook sin, can't we? You know, when our kids mess and we, we're going to do something and then we go, oh, no, it doesn't matter. We overlook it. We, we don't bother. God can never, 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 ever overlook our sin. He can't do it. 
It has to be judged. Every sin that's ever been committed has to be judged by God. That's the only way it's dealt with. That's the only way that sin loses its power, that it's been judged and punished. Then it has no more power over that person. God's wrath, wrath is another word for anger, God doesn't get angry like we get angry, but when God sees sin, there is something that emanates from him, and it's not to do with emotion, that it's unacceptable in his presence. When we do something that is kind and loving, he can't help but bless us. And he doesn't get emotional about that either. It's as though either the wrath of God is coming or the blessing of God is coming, depending how we conduct ourselves. The wrath of God against sin cannot be pacified because judgment has to happen to end sin's destructive power. Sin is destructive, you see. The slightest of sin is a destructive element. The wages of it is death. All sin leads to death. You say, well, there's black things and white things and little things and big things. I tell you, you put enough little things together and it becomes a big thing. And what starts off a little thing soon becomes a big thing. But from God's perspective, none of it is acceptable. All of it has to be judged Two parts, then, to God's judgment on sin. God, God cannot forgive man until his sin is judged. He just can't forgive you. It has to be judged. He has to judge your sin. The second thing is, until man recognises that God's perfect justice in judging and punishing sin and, and, of his, and of his wrath against it, man has to recognise that he has sinned and God has to judge him. His, his wrath against them needs, needs some action. Your sin, the sin that you committed, they had to be judged, and something had to be done. Until man recognises God's perfect justice in judging and punishing sin and the rightness of his wrath against it, we must recognise that all sin has to be punished. All sin, including our own. God's eternal plan to deal with our problems was revealed by the prophets in the Old Testament. The particular prophets we can look at are Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and they're very clear what he says to them. This was 600 years before Christ ever came. So right at the beginning in the Garden of Eden, God had, God had planned it all out. He knew. He, as I said last week, he wasn't one step ahead. He was every step into eternity ahead of us. And he's still ahead of us. He still knows everything about you. 
He knows everything. He knows every decision you make. He knows when you'll leave this planet. He knows what you'll do in eternity. He can see you all the way through eternity. He can see everything because he lives outside of the realm of time. Now you're thinking, well, you've lost me. I've lost myself. (laughs) That's not possible for us to contain that. But in a strange way, it's very reassuring. It's very reassuring that somebody who really, really loves us really, really sees everything. And we can, we can rest in that. No matter how stupid you are at times, he knows, he sees, he understands, he has the power to rescue and he has the love to rescue us. We get worked up about things, don't we, a little bit. Sometimes we just got to stop and think about this wonderful God and this wonderful salvation and just stop, stop in it. As you rush on in your worry and your anxiety, you're just allowing the enemy to, to build all sort of images and pictures to destroy. We have to stop and focus on this wonderful God we have. For God to achieve uh, the purposes that he wants to in man, he's lived for a thousand years and that hasn't achieved what he's wanted to achieve. He knew that, he did that for a point. For God to achieve his purposes, something dramatic has to happen. After David's reign, the prophets began to speak about it. They spoke about this new covenant that was coming. As soon as David realised that he had a, a dynasty, a line that would go on and on and on, and the prophets picked this up from God, they started to prophesy about how God would bring about a new covenant and make all this possible that David was speaking about. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time. So what he's saying, I did that covenant, only if they could have obeyed me, they would have ended up being a royal priesthood to the whole world. They would have evangelized the whole world and brought the whole world to God. But he said they couldn't do that. Now he says, I've got a new covenant that's going to come. Remember, this is 600 years before. Isn't that annoying that sometimes God says he's going to do something, but he didn't mean this afternoon. He meant in months or years to come. And, and God says, I'm sorry about that. I mean, he told Abraham he'd have a baby, didn't he? 25 years later, he has the child. I mean, it's a bit rough when, I mean, when you're only living, you know, so long. But sometimes you just got to, you know, just got to just think, well, if he said it, he said it. And that's all there is. And we need to know that he said it. And then just hang on in there. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds 
and I will write them on their hearts. You see what he's saying? He said, listen, I've written the law here, and it doesn't work. It doesn't help anyone. But I tell you, a day is coming when I will put the law inside of you. And when it's on the inside of you, that means you will have the motivation to want to keep it. You look there and you say, well, I want to keep it, but I can't. But when it's in here, it's going to be the very motivation of your life. Easiest thing possible for Christians to keep the law of God because it's resident on the inside of us. I will be their God, he says, and they will be my people. We've heard this one before, haven't we? I will be their God, they will be my people, and I will live in the midst of them. That's what he's saying all the way through the scriptures. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbour or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord. Why not? Because the Holy Spirit himself, the very life of Christ himself will be inside of us. Whereas before, people said, tell me about the Lord. Tell me what the Lord wants. Tell me what the Lord wants. The prophet had to come and to speak the word of the Lord. But now the Holy Spirit lives within us. That doesn't mean you don't need teachers and you can go off and do your own thing. That doesn't mean that. The teacher is here to help you, but your teacher is the Holy Spirit. If the teacher ever says anything that's wonky, your Holy Spirit inside you should go, whoa, that's not right. It is the Holy Spirit that teaches us. But we need people to explain scripture to us and then together we do this. No longer will a man teach his neighbour or a man his brother say, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. It's a bit like what I said at the beginning. We, we can know we're saved, they will know, but they don't understand what this salvation is. Many, many Christians know they're saved, but they couldn't explain much of this because they haven't applied themselves to understand it. Ezekiel, he says this in 37, 25 and 28. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. The idea that the stain of sin would be removed, the consciousness of sin would be removed. This is the point he's driving at here. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from your idols. So he's saying, I know that man inside is still feeling guilty. He might have offered sacrifices to the Lord of, of animals, but inside he still feels guilty because the blood of animals wasn't strong enough to cleanse the inside, only the outside, to cover the man, as it were. I will give you a new heart and I will put my spirit in you. Couldn't be clearer, could it? I will remove from you the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and I will move you to follow my decrees. The moving now is from the inside. It isn't an external obedience to the law. It is a moving of the spirit within the inside of us. Follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You will live in the land I gave you, your forefathers. You will be my people and I will build, oh sorry, I will be your God. It's just as important today under the new covenant to keep the laws of God 
as it was under the old covenant. This is what he says here. Even though I put my law in your heart and I put my spirit within you and I cleanse you of a consciousness of sin, you must still keep my laws. The laws of God never change. They are eternal. When they put the uh, different objects into the, the ark, remember the box, and they put it in the temple, initially, in, uh, when they were in the wilderness, they put three things into that. They put Aaron's rod, they put the golden jar, and they put the Ten Commandments. They went in the box. But then when it was in the temple, the only thing that was in the box was the Ten Commandments, the tablets of stone. The jar and the rod had been removed. The temple speaks of when Christ comes and established, but the law is still there. The law of God is never removed. Oh, we live under grace, surely not Philip. We're free to do what we like, as long as it's within the law, yes. And because God wants you to live in freedom, not afraid of the law. We'll move on to that one in a little while. If we are to escape judgment, because all sin has to be judged, and so the sinner has to be judged by God, all sin has to be judged. If we're to escape judgment, we need a sin bearer on our behalf. Somebody who can say, listen, I will take your sin and I will be judged for the sin that's in you. And the sin that's in you has been the root cause of all the sins. So in me taking your sin upon myself, I deal with the root cause of the problem. All the sins are forgiven. But it, I need to deal with this root thing called Sin. We need someone who will bear this thing called sin. This bit's important. Only a sinless man could perfectly recognise the divine justice of God's wrath against sin and perfectly agree with it. Because we are sinners, we would not agree with God's estimation that all sin needs to be judged because that would put us in a place of falling foul of judgment. So we would always fudge it. We would always say, well, God, I think you should judge this one, but not this one. I think you should judge her and him, but you shouldn't judge me. That's what the fallen nature does all the time. So the person who bore the punishment and judgment, he had to be a person who never sinned at all because God had to judge every, every sin. And the only person who could come and present himself before God and say, I think it's right, God, that you judge every sin in the world, I'm the only person who can say that because I've never sinned. That's the person we have to find. It's a bit of a technical thing, but do you get it? It had to be someone who'd never sinned, ever. So he could say to God, this is perfectly just what you're doing in killing me. 
So it didn't matter how small the sin was in your life, how, how wonderful you were as a person, <laughs> any sin, it required death and separation from God. And so Jesus was the only one that could do that. Therefore, we need a perfect man to be our sin bearer. He had to be perfect. Doesn't it say, I looked for someone, but I couldn't find anyone, and so I sent my son. No one could do the job that Jesus did. But it had to be a man that came. A man who had the potential to sin like every other man and woman in the world and yet did not sin. In, in Jesus Christ, God comes across the great chasm that's between us and God. He would have looked for a man to bridge the chasm, you see. Just one man. Just let me find one man who can bear the sin of the whole world, someone who's never sinned, and I can bridge that. I can reach across. Just like he did when he looked for a righteous man and he found Noah, remember, and he was able to, to reach across into the world. So he's looking now for a man that he can reach across who could bear the sins of the whole world. There isn't anyone. So he has to send a man. He has to create a man who could do this. Across the moral divide between a holy God and sinful man, he bridges the gap with Christ. God became man and the God-man is willingly made sin for us. It says in 2 Corinthians 5 and 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin or to become sin itself so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He sends this righteous man into the world to be amongst us. So there's someone now that can bear all the judgment and the punishment of God. The person had to be sinless. And so we have Jesus here. And now he has to take upon himself the sin of the whole world the only sinless one, he has to take it upon himself. He has to identify with everyone and everyone's sin, take it upon himself, and that when God looks at it, God does the only thing that he can possibly do. He punishes the sin, and in the punishment of the sin, then everyone else is justified. The sin of everyone came on him. You see, to take the power of sin out, you have to judge it, and then you have to punish it. When it's judged and punished, its power is gone. If a person commits a crime and murders somebody, the judge says, 
and I find you guilty and you will be punished. And so that person is punished for the sin they've committed. And when he has fulfilled his punishment, he is free. He's free. He's paid his debt, we say, to society now. He has to do another sort of thing with God to be free. He has to acknowledge Christ because he can't pay for his sins. All the people of the world could not pay for their sins because they needed someone to stand who was innocent, who could take it. Our sins, my sins, were attributed to Christ. That nature within me that wanted to sin all the time, that made me sin, that pushed me to sin, it was attributed to Christ. And Christ, the righteous one, said, I will take your sin and you can have my righteousness. Wow. Wow. You are, you are righteous through faith in Christ alone. You cannot add to your righteousness. You cannot take away from your righteousness. You have been imputed, granted, given it as a gift from God. So you say, no, I've got to try a bit harder. Stop trying! You're righteous in his sight because of Christ. See, this, this gospel of salvation is better than you ever thought it was. It is fantastic. You go, whoa! I don't put my hands in my pockets normally when I preach. Whoa! Is it that good? Yes. He knew you couldn't make it otherwise. You could not make it. He proved it through 4,000 years of the Old Testament that no one could make it. He brings the new covenant and now we can all make it. You say, but what if I sin? Well, stop it. That's it. It doesn't take your righteousness away from you. It can't because that was gifted to you. It's the grace of God that was gifted you righteousness. You're right. You'll die righteous. You're righteous in his sight. And that's just the end of the story. I don't want to sin, do you? I don't want to. I'm stupid at times or tired or just ignorant, whatever it is. I don't choose to sin. I just do it. But the life of God is in me, so I don't want to do it. I have this motivation not to. In the incarnation, Jesus becomes our substitute and our representative. I'm going to stop it there. We'll have a little break now, and we'll come back, pick this up, and uh, carry on a bit more with this. Thank you. In the incarnation, Jesus becomes our substitute. He became a man for all men, as it were. He was my substitute on the cross. He was your substitute on the cross. He took the punishment that God would give to you when he eventually meets you if you hadn't received him as your substitute. 
God can't punish me. He can't do that because Christ was punished. It would be immoral. It would be illegal for him to punish me at all. He will not do that. He can't. For Christ died for sins once and for all. The righteousness, sorry, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He's, he's also our representative. He's a man that represents all men, as it were. He represented all people when he died. He died for everybody. I'm talking to someone today and as I'm talking to him, I'm thinking, God died for you. You just need to see this. And he's fighting with me. I mean, verbally, not, not physically. Uh, trying to, to find answers everywhere. And I'm thinking, I'm only sitting there trying to do you a favour. And you're, you're desperately trying to defend yourself. And I'm thinking, I just pray. But I know I can't convince him. I know I can't. But sometimes you just keep talking, like I said, and the Spirit of God will do something. It'll do something. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. We no longer live for ourselves. We live for the one who died in our place, our representative. It was on the cross that Christ bore God's judgment on sin perfectly. With a human heart as he hung on the cross, he agreed with God's justice in dealing with sin. Oh, just think of that. Father, I agree with what you're doing today. You are punishing every sin that was ever committed and I agree with what you're doing because by punishing the sin the guilt is removed from all who put their faith in me. I hope none of you feel guilty for past sins. It's a false guilt It shouldn't be there at all. Because the day you put your faith in Christ, he took the guilt and he cleansed your consciousness of sin. Just as if you'd never sinned. That's also a meaning of justified. I stand here tonight, pure before my God righteous and sinless in his sight. And if I did something stupid today, unbeknowingly stumbling, then I have one before the Father who intercedes for me. And the minute I sinned, his blood cleansed my soul of sin, cleansed it instantly, I committed it, because I have faith 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that wonderful? Constantly pure in his sight. Wonderful. At last a human heart could agree with God's estimate on sin. Therefore, divine judgment fell on the only place where it could be redemptive. By, by God doing what he did to Christ, and it was God who crucified his own son, who exercised judgment and punishment on his own son. It was the only time it was redemptive. It redeemed the whole world. It saved the whole world. The holiness of God's character and the holiness of God's law has been upheld in Christ dying for us. Now God can, can justly forgive individual men and women who by repentance and faith become identified with Christ's substitutionary and representative death on their behalf. Yes, Jesus, you are my substitute. You are my representative before the Father. John, in 1 John 1, 7 to 9, it says this, But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, it purifies us. See, it cleanses our consciousness. It purifies us from all sin. If we claim... To be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Because I have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, his blood ever flows and purifies my heart from sin. There is some teaching about repentance that I'm not comfortable with. That whenever we sin, we just need to repent and through repentance, God forgives us. And, but the truth is, when did you last repent? And when did you last sin? We sin all the time. We're making mistakes all the time. Um, it's, not, it's not we commit sins, it's sins of omission. Have you confessed all of those sins? You said, Phil, I didn't even know I did them. How can you confess them then? Well, if you haven't confessed them and repented of them, they must still be there. <laughs> no, no, that's not what the scripture teaches. Obviously, if I stubbornly want to do something that I know that's wrong and God is speaking to me and I do that thing, then I have to come to God and say, God, what an idiot I am. I know that you forgive me, but I need to say something about this because that was just willful disobedience. Of course, I say I'm sorry. I don't want to do it again and give me the grace to not do that. But we're not like that, are we? We're followers of Jesus. We don't want to do that. Our sins are when we stumble and fall and make silly mistakes. And the blood of Jesus washes us clean. Faith in Christ's death, it removes the guilt of sin. The blood of Jesus somehow removes 
the stain of sin from our lives so my heart is ever pure before the Lord. Forgiveness deals with the guilt of sin. Cleansing deals with the stain. God removes the sin completely. The problem of sin in our lives has been dealt with. The problem of sin in your life has been dealt with. Will you fall and stumble and slip and be foolish at times? Of course you will. But it's not that that separates you from God eternally. It is the fact that this thing called sin has been dealt with by Christ. We're going to deal with the other three things now. I'd like to say I'll go through them a bit quicker, but you know me, I'm terrible. I probably won't. Anyway, um, the second thing we have to deal with is the internalised law Getting God's law into our heart, remember, reading it on a, on a tablet of stone doesn't, doesn't help us to keep it. And so God has to get the law off this tablet of stone and put it in here so we're motivated to do good, not just read about what we should be doing. Jeremiah 31, 33 says this, God says that the first step in the final solution to the problem of covenant obedience is to internalize the law. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after that time. We are the house of Israel when he talks to us in those terms. This is the covenant he'll make with them, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I'll write it on their hearts. That means that external law will now become internal. It won't be simply something we read, but something that is on the inside of us. It's in our heart. It is to become the internal law, not simply the external one. Instead of being a standard to keep or even a principle to live by, the law of God is to become the internal motivation of our lives. It turns from something negative to positive. Externally, you see, the law of God was thou shalt not do this and thou shalt not do that and, and all the things that we wanted to do because of our value system inside of us. We were rebellious against those things and we, we trumped them every time. But now the law of God is here within us. It's I want to do this. I want to do that. That's what he means when he says he writes it in our minds and in our hearts. It changes from a negative to a positive thing. And it becomes the motivation of our lives. Instead of knowing what we should do, but lacking the motivation to do it, we will be moved from within to freely keep God's law. Is that true of you? <laughs> do I want to keep the law? Well, of course I do. I love God. I don't want to do anything that offends God. How's he going to accomplish this? He accomplishes it through the incarnation again. Jesus had to come as a man and die, you see. He had to. We've looked at that. He changes you on the inside now by his incarnation again, by coming. Christ's coming was vitally important to us and to our salvation. Not only his death, but he saved us through his life. 
It says this in Romans 5 and 10. For if we, when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, we were reconciled to him, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? How were you saved through the life of Christ? How does Christ living a perfect life affect us? What bearing does it have on our lives? Jesus is called by Paul, he's called the last Adam. He came to create, as it were, a new beginning for man. The new covenant was a new beginning for man. And just as Adam was the first beginning of man, Christ, they sometimes refer to him as the second Adam, but people don't like that. They like calling him the last Adam. He came and he was the first of a new beginning of men. It says about he was the first to be raised from the dead, of which many more will be raised from the dead. But he started a new, a new species of being. That's who we are. As the originator of the new covenant man, he had to fulfill in his human life the promises of the new covenant. The promise of the new covenant is to live like Jesus. His death solved the problem of guilt and forgiveness. We've established that one. But his life now, how he saved us through his life, his life was the vehicle whereby the law of God was internalised. How did he do this? He had to maintain a pure and perfect obedient heart as a man. You see, he was tempted in all ways like you were, but he lived a perfect life. Now, he didn't have that nature of sin. There was a, an advantage to him, otherwise he couldn't have been who he was and saved us. But he was tempted like you, and every time temptation came, he, he did what God said. So he wrote in his heart the law of God, and he kept the law of God for us. He kept it for you. He kept it perfectly as a man walking on the earth. He never once sinned, never once. He said, didn't he, Satan's got nothing on me. He can't hold me at all. Listen to this. By obedient, painstaking, persistent, perfect obedience in every situation and in every circumstance, in time of stress and in times of boredom, over great issues and small issues, he was writing God's law on his heart, on his human heart. Christ lived a perfect life as he walked on the earth. The word of God says, I am in Christ, so I have lived a perfect life on the earth. Because he lived his life for me. See, when you stand before God with the same eyes and compassion and heart that he looked at his son when he returned to glory is what he'll look at you with 
You must never, never, never be ashamed to stand before God. You are a wretched thing. I know you are like me. But what Christ has done, you can rise every morning and say, your son, your daughter is rising again in purity of life because I'm in Christ today and I'm going to live for you. We need to see what a wonderful, wonderful salvation we have. We have no reason to bow our heads, to back away, to feel exhausted or tired or frightened or angry. There's a load of stuff that's around us that's trying to pull us down and to destroy us. And this world is a terrible place, but we are in Christ. We live in him. We move in him. We have our very beings in Christ who live this perfect life for us. The law was written on his heart. And he has come to live inside of me. His heart has become my heart. I don't want my heart anyway. I want his heart. His heart becomes the wellspring of my life, not my heart. We need to transform. We need to fully embrace our salvation and everything it means to us. Every law of God was perfectly inscribed on his heart and he kept every one of them for himself, yes, but also for you because he knew when this was all over he would go back to his father and the spirit that was in him, the life that was in him, the nature that was in him would come into you that's the heart you now have. It says in Hebrews 10, 5 and 7, Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. What for? One was to go to the cross and to die for the salvation of all people, a perfect man, but it was also to live a perfect life that we might receive his heart into us. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then he said, here I am. And as it is written about me in the scroll, I have come to do your will, O God. Yes, he was tempted in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, didn't he, is there another way we can do this? Do I have to do this? That is only showing us that he was tempted. Thank you for showing us that, God. It wasn't a weakness in Christ. But then he said at the same time, but I know. I know what I must do and I will do it. It was inscribed on his heart. I have come that your law be written on my human heart, he said. In his incarnation, Jesus created in himself and for us a new self that is created to be like God in true likeness and holiness. And this is the nature that is born in us by the Holy Spirit.
I have Christ's nature in me. Wow. The third thing that he deals with is these inner values. Remember when I said under the, the fallen nature, you have values before you came to Christ were pretty miserable. They were pretty selfish. That's all they were, really. I mean, everything pertaining to looking after yourself and getting what you want at other people's expenses and, and all those sorts of things. Our old nature's values have to be rendered inoperative. Not only is the law to be internalised, something has to happen to the polluted heart of man. Sin is to be cleansed from it, and the hostile values of the sinful nature rendered inoperative. He, sometimes I think, God, just take the old nature away. But he doesn't do that. So you can get up any minute, any minute you like and sin. You can say what you like and do what you like. You can. Because the old nature is still there. And if you allow yourself to drift away from God, to give too much time listening to what the enemy is saying, you will sin. The old nature, the values of the old nature will start to rise up and start to dominate your life again. You're still holy and precious in his sight. That, that will never remove you are still the redeemed of the Lord. You are still saved. But we can allow this old nature, the old values within us, to rise. I choose to change my values. See, there's a part we have to play here. God doesn't force anything upon us. Everything that God has done for you so far, he's done it through Jesus Christ. He hasn't made you do anything, but he is saying now, there's a part that you have to play. I've done all this. I've sent Jesus to live a perfect life. I've put him on the cross for you. I've, I've made it possible by the Holy Spirit bringing you the very nature of Christ and put it in you. Now you have to do something. You have to live this life now. You have to live it. Change to his values. It's hard. You say, I can't do it. I know you can't. It's the whole point. When you try to be good in your own strength, you can't do it. You've just got to say again and again and again, God, reach down again with your grace and help me do this. One day I will stand before the Lord and he will say, this was so good in your life, Philip. And I will, I will sort of smile and say, yeah, but I know why that was so good. Because you did that work in me. Don't show me the bad bits because they're the bits I did. I don't want to see them. And he won't. He won't. It's him, you see. If you see anything good in me, it's not me. It's God. It's God in me. 
It's God working through me. It's God speaking. It's God smiling. It's God doing. It's God giving. It's God, God being generous. It's God. It's God. It's God. Left to my own devices, I can be as mean and selfish and as horrible and self-centered and just like anyone else. But it's the, it's the grace of God. This is a wonderful subject to study the very grace of God, where God bends down to the earth for no reason, but he simply wants to, and give us the benefit of the doubt again and again and again and again because of his, his graciousness towards us. Those who belong to Christ, what have they done? They have crucified their sinful nature with its passions and its desires. Get up, you lazy thing, Philip. Read the word of God and fill yourself with the word of God. You see, we're lazy. We're lazy, lazy people. Crucify that lazy, sinful nature. Discipline yourself. Oh, what a dirty word. But what a lovely word. We know then that these values, they are the fruit of the Spirit. They are love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. I think of those words all the time. And sometimes I say to myself, that wasn't very gentle, Philip. That wasn't very kind, Philip. I want the values of Christ to be the values of my new nature, not the values of my old nature, but the fruit of the Spirit, and I've given them to you there. Paul tells us, against such things, these the fruit of the Spirit. There is no law, or he's saying, the law of God is not against any of these things. We should live by them all the time. On the contrary, these inner values are in perfect harmony with the internalized law. You, you keep your old nature, unfortunately, but you teach it new values. The values of Christ... So, in the life of Jesus, the result of perfect harmony, Jesus had perfect harmony with the Father because he had the inner values, the fruit of the Spirit, and he had internalized the law. So, he had two things. He had the law of God on his heart, and he had the values of Christ in his life. Isn't that what you've got? Through faith in Christ, the nature of Christ has come and entered into your life. And so the law of God is written on your heart. It is the nature of Christ that's living inside you. You have the nature of Christ. And then you know the values and you bring the values, the fruit of the Spirit, with the internal law of God 
dwelling in us. And what do we live in? Perfect obedience. You never have to sin again. You don't have to. I never said you wouldn't. I just said in Christ it's possible that you don't have to. Well, see, we've all got some growing up to do. Don't beat yourself up. Don't do that. We're all growing up. Or we're, we're proceeding along this, this road of righteousness and the sun is getting brighter and brighter and we're becoming more and more righteous as we walk down the road. Whichever way you want to look, we're growing up in him. Whichever way you want to... I don't know how far you've got. You don't know how far I've got. I don't know. God doesn't say this is how far you've got. We just we keep going, keep going, keep going. And we see that we live... We live more in obedience to God every day, every day. Out of this perfect obedience comes perfect freedom. Jesus was free to be spontaneous. When I read about Jesus prayed, I think I've shared with this before, Jesus never prayed like we pray. We pray and say, God help me, uh, God show me what to do. God, Jesus knew what to do all the time because he had the obedience of the law written on his heart and he had the values in his nature. And so he lived spontaneously, walking in the will of God. As we walk more with him, we can live spontaneously with him. We know what to do and what not to do. Jesus was free to do spontaneously whatever he liked because the value system which guided his preferences or his desires was in perfect harmony with the law of unselfish love. That's it. I know I know often what the answer is. I never have to pray about it, because I know. Because his law is written on my heart. As I've grown up in him and allowed Christ to come into me more, and I've sought to live by the values by the fruit of the Spirit, and discipline myself, we walk spontaneously in the will of God. It was in his heart so that he spontaneous and freely lived in the will of God, knowing that what pleased him was always what pleased the Father. In John 8 and 29 it says this, the one who sent me is with me, he said. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. That's all you have to determine to do. I will always do what pleases my Father. The fourth of these critical things he has to deal with is the, the indwelling spirit 
that which unites us to Christ. The motive of covenant is the desire of God for an intimate relationship with men and women. That's what God always wants. Intimacy with you. More than anything else, he wants you. He doesn't want you to go to church. He wants you. Going to church might help in the process, but it's the part of the process. It's not the answer. The reading your Bible is not the answer. Praying is not the answer. Being nice to people is not the answer. The answer is God saying, do all these things and me and you will have an intimate relationship. Some churches would stop that. You need not to go to that one. It'll destroy that intimate relationship if you're not careful. There's good and bad of everything. Now we go because he calls us to go and we should go. But when we go, we need to protect ourselves because we're driving towards intimacy with God. But a holy God can only have communion with holy people, of course. He says, be holy because I am holy. And that's an Old Testament verse. Be holy people. The Holy Spirit unites us to Christ by his indwelling. Every person born again of the Spirit of God has the Holy Spirit living within them. Now he says, you can have an infilling of more of the Spirit. Why would you ever say no? If, if the indwelling of the Holy Spirit brings me into a relationship with God and God says you can have more of it, Give it to me now, again and again and again and again, so I'm overflowing in the Spirit. I'm drunk in the Spirit that I might live in harmony and fellowship with my God. We've even messed up with the Holy Spirit, haven't we? Somehow using it as a tool or a weapon or something when the essence of it, and it is, it is those things as well, don't get me wrong, he comes to, to, to be active in us, but it was to bring us into a far deeper relationship with God first. The Holy Spirit unites us with Christ by his indwelling. He imparts the holiness of Christ in us. This is his sanctifying work. Fill me, fill me, Lord, with your spirit that I might be sanctified, that I might live a more holy life for you. He gives us access to the Father. He teaches us the relationship of sonship with God. He maintains and deepens our relationship with God so that we live to please him. The result is the liberty of the new covenant. Do you know what Paul calls this? Paul knew what he was talking about. He calls it the glorious freedom of the children of God. Have you got that? Glorious freedom. I hope understanding this covenant tonight will bring you into a greater depth of freedom with Christ. 
It's like you can't get it wrong, can you? It's like he's done 99.999% of the work and he knew he had to. He had to do it all, didn't he? To get us there. And he has, and we're there. And we need to appropriate it into our lives. In 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18, it says, he says, now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we who with unfailed faces all reflect the Lord's glory, we're being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. We increasingly look and live and sound like Jesus because his very nature and the law of God is within us and the values of God are preeminent in our lives. The new covenant of peace made by the blood of Jesus Christ achieves the purpose of the covenant. It took us 4,000 years to get there. You did take your time, God. But we didn't live those 4,000. We're living 2,000 years after he finished his work. Do you think we should have moved on a bit more than we have? I mean, we have, we have 2,000 years of history of saints who have lived in the covenant and they've tried to explain stuff to us. The alienation caused by sin has been overcome through Christ. God and man, we're reconciled. <laughs> That's it. We're reconciled with God. It's now possible once again and now forever for God to be their God and the nations of the earth to be his people and God to dwell in the midst of them because we've been made holy. In achieving this end, the new covenant gathers in and both includes and expands all that is provided under the previous covenants. We've arrived. Next week, I want to look at what covenants mean to us today. We, we learned that the covenants are an everlasting covenant. When God said it to Abraham, it was forever. When God said it to uh, Moses and David, it was forever. The covenant he's cut with us, this new covenant, it will go on forever. But at the cross, Jesus fulfilled certain parts of the covenant. And because Jesus came, there's parts that we don't have to do anymore. We need to find out what parts we don't have to do and what parts we do have to do. Because that's what covenant is, isn't it? I'll do my bit, you do yours. But if you don't do yours, I'm not duty-bound to do mine. Now, God is very gracious sometimes, and he does it anyway. But he doesn't have to. And if he wants to mature us, he won't. And people pray and pray and pray and say, God isn't doing anything. I want to sit down and say, are you keeping the covenant? Well, what does that mean? 
well, if you don't keep the covenant, why would God keep his part of the covenant? How else would you grow up? If he kept giving you something because you kept breaking the covenant, then he's not helping us at all. He's not loving us. He's of no help at all. When I break the covenant, my life's got to get uncomfortable. And then I go to God and say, am I doing something wrong here? Am I, am I not fulfilling something I should be doing? And he says, you sure are, Philip. You do this, and you get my blessing. You don't do this. I love you so much, I can't bless you. Whichever way, it's because of his love. We're going to look at that this week. Thank you all very much. God bless. You've been listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please come on back next week for our third lesson in the Covenants Part 2 module. If you would like to partner with Arise Ministry, please do so by going onto our website where you can make a secure online donation. Arise Ministry, a living legacy.